You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money. We are unabashed in our decision to do this show, especially for women, because we noticed in this booming world of podcasting, there just isn't much out there for women, by women, about money. And so we want to do something about that. And if we do our job here, maybe, just maybe, we can help you change your financial future for the better. That is our goal. And on today's show, we've got sex. We've got money. We've got power. Who else could I be talking about but Joanna Coles? Joanna Coles is with me in the studio today. She is the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan, which is the world's largest media brand. She's been there since 2002. And these days, which is very exciting, she sits on the board of directors of Snapchat, and she's expanded Cosmo viewership on Snapchat to over 3 million daily viewers. Joanna, explain and welcome. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here, Jean. I've I've taken your money advice over the years and uh, I'm still standing, so that's a good sign. It is a good sign for me. Uh, <laughs> well, and for me too. At least I'm not broke under the bridge in Brooklyn, which is where I fear I may end up uh, always women's money fantasies. Um, yes, Cosmo has a button or a, a channel on the Discover platform on Snapchat, and we do have about 3 million people a day looking at it. And what's been fun for us at Cosmo, having the whole digital explosion, really, since I've been editing the book, actually, or in the last five years, is just the scale of the audience you are able to reach through social media is so exciting. It's it's amazing. It's amazing. I've I've wrapped my arms around Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Snapchat, I guess, is the next it's is the, the next, next one, one. that we've got to conquer. Yep, you must. You seem comfortable talking about everything. Is there any topic that you're uncomfortable with? Uh, well, there are some topics I'm uncomfortable with. I, I think it's really who you're talking about them with, isn't it? So it, with close friends, I can pretty much talk about everything. But I think it's important to have a few personal things, too. How about money? Uh, money, I, I don't particularly find talking about actual sums of money interesting. But what I do find is our own psychology around money is very interesting. And I do think one of the things I've realized since being at Cosmo is how hard women find to ask for money or to negotiate for money. And I think they definitely find it harder than men. And it's certainly something in our culture we need to do more of. And I am really cognizant of how poor money literacy is in this culture, uh, how the credit card seems to be the answer to everything, when, of course, we know it isn't, mm-hmm. and how saddled so many young people are with college debt and how hard it is to come from under that. So we spend a lot of time at the magazine and indeed with the whole brand, figuring out how to show people how to manage debt, how to not feel as if you're living under this enormous 
thumb pressing you down and you're not able to do anything because you have debt and also how not to run up unpayable back debts on credit cards at crazy interest rates. It's very, very interesting, I think, and challenging for this generation that you have to learn how to manage your student debts while at the same time crafting a life. Because right. if you put life on the back burner, things in the future like retirement never get started. Well, and also I think you're trying to make big decisions. Should you buy an apartment? Should you rent an apartment? What about a car? And you see this emergence of a huge sharing generation. I mean, people aren't buying cars now. They're using Ubers. You know, people are renting to go on holiday. They're doing Airbnb instead of staying in uh, hotels. And both options are cheaper. Um, but also when you have student debt, they make much more sense. And you can see this sense, you know, I uh, recently invested in a company I'm very excited about called Lumoid, which rents consumer goods to people. So mm -hmm. you can borrow a camera, you can borrow a GoPro, you can try out Fitbits. And instead of having to pay up front, you, you know, try it and then send it back, you can actually trial it for a month uh, or a week. Uh, or you can actually buy a drone if you're getting married and you want a drone to take the pictures, you, you can rent it for a week and then send it back. And so you see the sense in which the economy itself is shifting to take into consideration the fact that people feel they have less consumer or they have less income to commit to things. And also, I think, and I'm sure you've talked about this on the show before, but with tech in particular, the speed, I mean, we live in the age of the upgrade. Right. So the idea of committing to a big purchase makes less sense now because you know in six months time that we will it, it will feel out of date well the same is very true with fashion I mean rent the runway was one of the first in this in this space and when my daughter who's now in college was asked to her third prom we were out of the dress buying mode and into the dress renting mode right and especially because with Instagram, as soon as you're taking a picture of a girl in a dress, she no longer wants to wear that dress. Right. It's almost like you've seen the picture you've done. It's going off to goodwill. And I think, yes, funnily enough, Rent the Runway has just started a Rent the Runway for the office or for day wear. And it's a, a, a subscription box. And I think there are two. I think it's one at $99 and one at $129 a month. And you can borrow three things at any one time. And it's unlimited. And my assistant at work has been doing it. And it's really transformed as she comes in every morning wearing new things. She wants to know what we think. And also it's a way of trying out new looks and reinventing your own fashion persona without, again, committing big dollars that you don't feel will be worth it in the long run. You alluded to the fears of living under the Brooklyn Bridge, and we, we all, I think, have these, particularly women, these bag lady fears. What do you do to deal with those feelings and those fears? And on the flip side, what makes you feel empowered financially? Well, financially feeling empowered, actually, I think perhaps the first thing that we did, uh, I'm married, and my husband and I actually finally hired someone to really take care of our, our finances in a much more day-to-day -day way. We were no longer wanting to sit down and pay all the bills together and, and figure all that stuff out. We just wanted to pay someone to do it for us. So that made us feel A, more grown up, but B, we have some we have a sort of team of people overseeing it which makes it sound like we have great riches and we really don't but in terms of uh, and, and we know this through all the empirical research money is one of the great stressors of a relationship no doubt right it's one of the hardest things for couples to talk about and we found that we didn't want to spend 
our very limited um, personal time talking about bills or have we paid this or who how did we track this we just wanted to pay someone else to do it some people pay someone else to cook some people pay someone to shout at them when they're working out our choice was to have someone do this with money so that's been super helpful so that's made me feel empowered uh, and also earning more makes you feel empowered and i think one of the the big cultural issues for women is this sense that the more successful women are actually again all the research shows the more unlikable they are perceived to be. It's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. And it was one of the great messages of Lean In, which um, had such resonance for me when I read Sheryl Sandberg's book. And so I think feeling confident to ask for more money, understanding your value. This is something Mika Brzezinski talks about. Um, know your value, mm -hmm. grow your value, and just wanting to explore options to make sure that you're being paid what you feel you should be paid. So how do you tread that line between asking for what you feel you're worth, you know you're worth because you've done the research, and the idea that people may not like you because of it? Well, you had a great line in there when you said you've done your research. I, I'm you know, sometimes I have to renegotiate my contract when it comes up. I'm also on the other side of it, watching people come into my office and ask for more money. And I remember once um, I'd gone quite a long way in the hiring process of someone I was very enthusiastic about, and it got down to the point where we were going to negotiate. And she came at me like a truck, like a Mack truck on the I-95. Mm -hmm. And she asked for more money than I was earning. And what it made me realize was, yes, I know she was trying to be audacious and show me that she was ambitious, but she also showed me that she had fundamentally misunderstood the market in which she was working. And I then began to doubt that she would be able to negotiate uh, appropriately for her team and a lot of the outside work she would be doing with other vendors in her job at the magazine. And so that was a huge turnoff point for me. And I think... While we want to encourage women to feel confident asking for more money, we want it to be responsible asking. You have to understand the state your business is in. You can't go in and demand the riches of crisis if your business is in a crisis. And so I think it's it's sort of learning to be reasonable and also understanding negotiating tactics. So you ask for more than you will get. They will meet you, you hope, somewhere in the middle. There's a bit of wriggle room. If you can't get the amount of money you want, can you do one day at home? Home. Can you get a bit of extra vacation? And maybe in the vacation, uh, if, you, if it's extra vacation, you can actually find something to earn a bit more money there. I, I think, you know, especially at the moment, the workplace feels much more flexible than it has done before. And also there are other things that people value, not just greenbacks. And of course, there's, you know, it's very important to make sure that you can earn and cover all your expenses. But there are other things that add to the quality of life that can be negotiable. I also think in, in hearing your story that we often don't understand what's going on in the mind of the person across the table. Yes. I, I had this experience very, very early in my career. I was working at Smart Money. Steve Swartz, who now runs the Hearst Corporation, was my boss. And I wanted... A, a promotion, and B, more money. And I went in and guns blazing and asked for it. And he put me in my place by telling me 
two things. Number one, that I had to start writing stories that people weren't um, incredibly reluctant to edit because they were so badly written before I was going to get a promotion. <laughs> so I, right. I was like, okay, got to work on that. But he also said, look, I, I would love to give you a raise, but I can't give you a raise because I need to be able to justify it to my bosses. So you go get another offer and then you come back and ask me for a raise and then I'll give you a raise. Oh, that's interesting. And did you do that? I did do it. it took me a little while. I, I wanted to work on my writing first so that he wasn't reluctant for those reasons. But I, I did do it. I eventually was making more money at that magazine because I, I and I didn't want to leave which was also the hard part about going out and getting another offer. Well, and I do think it depends, obviously, what business you're in, because in some businesses, and the media is one of them, you're worth as much to one person as you are to someone else. And all you need, it's like when you're selling a house, all you need is one other offer. But you have to be very careful uh, when you have that offer that you will be prepared to go if, if, if you decide to use it as a negotiating tactic. And I've had people come into my office and say, well, I've got another job offer, so I need an extra X amount of dollars. And there have been occasions when I've said, fantastic, congratulations, good for you. I'll be, you know, I can't wait to hold the leaving party for you. And <laughs> I know that they have been um, caught unawares by this. And sometimes uh, it's better for them to go. Yeah, sometimes it is. My my husband, who you know, Elliot, who... Well, your husband actually hired me at Hearst and he changed my life. So I'm very excited to be here. Well, he changed mine as well. <laughs> but he he's in um, human resources at Hearst. He hires editors and art directors. And he says that leaving thing is something you can only do once per job. Right. You try to do it twice and people are going to go ballistic. Let me take a, a brief break to tell everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women Women like us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we've worked so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time where you'll find more conversations like this one with Joanna Coles, information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times. And that's true whether you're getting married, divorced, starting a new career. So again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. Cosmopolitan has always been the magazine about sex. And and you've broadened it to make it, I think, the magazine about women's empowerment when it comes to many, many different things in in their lives. But when it comes to sexuality, do you think that's something that we should be using in the workplace? Well, it depends what you mean by using. Um, I think when Cosmo started and Helen Gurley Brown revamped it from this elite little literary magazine into what became a phenomenon, they couldn't keep Cosmo on the shelves. Um, we were at a very different point in the culture with sex. And Helen saw sex as currency that women, who at the time were less likely to be in the workplace than they are now, sex was the currency that they could use to get what they wanted. And she felt that most women wanted the security of being married. They wanted, and they wanted sex as a way of manipulating men. Uh, but often because they wanted economic security. Nowadays, that's, that's much less of the case. Um, and I now can't remember your question. Give me your question again. Should women I've gone use... Off on one of my aunts. No, I think... Oh, well, should women use, use sexuality, sexuality in the office? Yeah. In one way, my answer is, of course not, in terms of direct, you know, I will give you sexual favours if you will promote me or give me extra money. Of course not. That's a hiding to nothing. HR will get involved. Absolutely not. Uh, and that's certainly not a, a long-term career strategy. 
we all know people in the office who have very compelling personalities and sometimes the sort of sexual magnetism of them is wrapped up in that and I'm sure we've all worked with people that we've watched them flirting and thought I can't believe you're doing that and I can't believe he's falling for mm-hmm. it I think there's a lot of that that goes on um, but as a long-term strategy for improving your career it's clearly not going to work and it's interesting I think with more female bosses in the office that will change the the notion that you can use sexuality to get what you want. I think certainly there was a time when people tried to do that, but that doesn't seem to me like a good strategy. It seems like it's a very valuable currency, though, in social media. If you look at the Kim Kardashians of the world shooting pictures of themselves wearing absolutely nothing out into the universe and becoming very rich and very famous because of it, it sends a message to young girls that the more cleavage, the better, and the more cleavage or whatever, the more successful you'll be. Interesting. Well, I think, I mean, listeners will probably know from my voice, I didn't grow up in America. And America has the most complicated attitude towards sexuality. And on the one hand, you have this extreme puritanism, and obviously we know where that comes from, and the idea that... I mean, one of the facts I find most extraordinary, and I learned this from John Oliver's show, and I was so concerned by it that I went off to to research it, and of course it's true, is that only 13 states across America have to are, are mandated to factually explain how babies are born. And I think the extreme discomfort with which America approaches sex and can't talk about sex um, manifests at the extreme end of incredible, violent, really upsetting and distressing porn and this sense of extreme sexuality. Now, I think the Kardashians fall somewhere in the middle of that, More distressing, I find, is the incredible amount of porn that's available to kids at a very young age because it can't really be blocked on their cell phones. And, you know, yes, of course, we all like to think we have the family computer and it's sitting on the dining room table and we've put the child locks on. But actually what kids see now at a very early age is really quite disturbing to me. And we hear that this plays out in the ways that... um, Couples communicate with each other now and young men think that women are going to behave like porn stars and young women think that men want them to behave like porn stars. I mean, one of the um, trends which I'm sure you've come across uh, and maybe your daughter has wrestled with it is this idea that pubic hair now is somehow alien and we hear all sorts of stories of boys sort of recoiling when a girl has pubic hair because in porn you don't have pubic hair because it gets in the way of the money shot and and this set, I, I find things like that really disturbing more so than I do Kim Kardashian sort of you know posting a a naked selfie. And that's partly because I think Kim Kardashian has never pretended to be anything other than someone who grew up through a sex tape. And there is only one Kim Kardashian, really. I mean, it's not like she actually spawned a whole group of really successful young women. And I think women have always wrestled with how do I appear attractive to men? And men have done the same back, right? Yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. You know, it's interesting you said 13 states? 13 states. So in only 13 states is it mandated that the medical information they give you about how babies are created and born is accurate. Well, in in only 14 states is it mandatory to teach 
kids about money. Interesting, interesting. So money and sex very close together in that way. And and two things that people have difficulty, great discomfort discussing, talking about, except at Cosmo where we talk about everything, which is which is <laughs> wonderful, and why why it's the magazine that girls like my daughter and of all ages continue to reach for. In Karen Feinerman's book, one of the things that we learned is that you have something that you call an fu fund. Well, I'm sure I'm not the only person to have an FU fund. No. Um, <laughs> but I do think it, I've always found it when I could actually get one. And it's not vast, my FU fund, but I think that it's very nice to have a small sense of control in one's life. So I've always tried to keep enough money that I would be able to leave a job if I felt I was being asked to do something that really compromised me or I felt really uncomfortable in and I would be able to survive for six months, which would give me enough time to find something else. Uh, and I think it gives you a great sense of confidence because it's, you know, we've all been in situations where you have to carry on working for something that doesn't bring you great joy because you absolutely need the paycheck at the end of the month. And having had that experience when I was younger doing holiday jobs, um, you realize that what money buys you is a certain degree of control and freedom. And that's what is really nice to have. And I, I found it psychologically really helpful to just know, listen, I don't have to put up with this. If I really want, I can walk. Do you think it's important for women to have money that is under their sole control? Absolutely. I mean, one of the most important things I think my mother ever taught me, um, both my parents worked throughout my, my childhood uh, and both loved what they were doing. My dad was a teacher. My mum was a social worker. But the the thing that my mum always taught me was you must have your own money. It's how you make your own decisions. And I've watched a lot of friends over the years get married, have children stop working and then be reliant on their husbands. And the balance of power changes and the husband assumes control. And that was not a situation I wanted to be in. The balance of power changes often similarly when the woman becomes the breadwinner, which, as you said, is happening more More and and more often. Any advice for women in that scenario? Well, I would say my husband and I have passed the baton uh, back and forth when we've had moments of one of us has had a bigger job than the other. Um, I think, you know, everything comes down to communication and talking to someone about things, right? And also understanding and valuing what the other person is doing. And one of the things I noticed with my female friends who'd especially often the third child was the tipping point that they would have a third child and suddenly working hard with their husband or partner working hard became really too stressful. They would give up the third child and they would find that their husband no longer valued what they were doing in the same way as when they were actually going to an office or to a hospital Mm -hmm. or whatever they were doing. And so I think It comes down to communication, and I think it comes down to valuing what the other person is is doing. Last question, and this is one that we ask everyone on this show. Power, fame, love, money. Rank order them for us. Well, I think none of it means anything if you don't have love. The love of your family and also someone to love. I think that's the most important thing, that it's it's great to be loved. But if you're not able to love back, then that feels to me like it would be very hollow. Um, 
money is important to pay the rent. I, I'm always fascinated by the way that people talk about careers in our culture. And, you know, this thing at the moment about you must find your passion, you must find what you love. It's so hard to do that. And lots of people have work uh, that is perfectly sustainable that they are not wildly passionate about where they sure. don't have homework. Uh, but they're realistic. They have to pay the bills. This is fine. They have great colleagues at work. They don't agonize about it when they come home. Uh, so I'm very practical about money. And I think it's, you know, it helps you live the kind of life that you want to live. So I would have, uh, I think, love first, money next. And what were the other two? Power and fame. Oh, well, then possibly power and then I think the idea that you couldn't be anonymous and get up in the morning and walk the dog or buy milk without being shot by a paparazzi you know in your PJs and Uggs would be quite grim and I think what's fascinating to me about fame is that people want it so badly and then when you talk to people who have a huge degree of fame all they do is bitch about having fame and you want to say well you don't actually have to be this famous and I think we look around and you see um you see people who are incredibly celebrated for what they do, but seem to have a very good relationship with fame. And I'm thinking of someone like Meryl Streep, who sure. couldn't have had more Oscar nominations, the dominant actress of our of our age, but who seems to have been able to handle fame with the greatest of lightness of touches. I, I hear, speaking of fame, that there is a scripted series potentially on the way about your life. Uh, well, rather thrillingly, um, ABC Freeform, which is the new version of ABC uh, Family, uh, we're in negotiations to do a show that I would say is loosely inspired by me. I mean, it's not strictly about my life, but it's about it's a slight fish out of water. A journalist comes to a woman's magazine and then it's about the team that she works with. But it's been very, very uh, thrilling talking to them about it. And we're all super excited. That sounds sounds fantastic. We will look for more. Joanna Coles, thank you so much for coming in and for the conversation. It was terrific. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And now we're going to go right to your questions. Kelly Hulkerin is in the studio with me. She has gathered questions from Facebook and Twitter and our email address, jeanchatsky.com. Yes, hello. Our first question is from Lisa. She wrote to us on Facebook. She writes, I am a 39-year-old woman and I'm in the process of switching careers. I will be leaving teaching and going to physician assistant school. Here's my question. Should I take money out of my IRA to cover tuition or take the unsubsidized loan I've been offered? My urge to take the loan is the possibility that when I'm hired, my employer may offer loan assistance. What are your thoughts, Jean? My thoughts would be take the loan but not even for that reason. When when we compare interest rates against the amount that you could earn on an investment, you got to look at whether the interest rate on that loan is high or low. And student loan interest rates are A, deductible, and B, generally pretty low anyway. And C, I didn't even know there was a C when I started to answer this question, but there is C, Thanks to companies like SoFi and Citizens Bank, you can also refinance student loans at lower interest rates than you can get them originally. So I would say minimize the borrowing that you have to do. You don't want to borrow unnecessarily, but go ahead and take the loan and then make sure that you're in a place where you're going to be able to just pay it back over time. The other thing to understand is that there are a lot of options when it comes to repayment of student loans. And taking the money out of your IRA, you're going to get a huge hit 
on that. You're going to have to pay taxes. You're going to have to pay a 10% penalty unless it's a Roth IRA, which gives you a little more leeway for education. But in this case, it's it's pretty clear to me. You, you take the loan, you pay it off after time, and, and you're going into a great career. I mean, I'm worried about people in certain professions. I am not worried about physicians' assistants or nurses. Always a need. Absolutely. Always a need. And I've heard you say so many times, never touch retirement. Is tapping your 401k worse than tapping into an IRA the same? It's about the same. This is why if you have a choice of putting some money into a Roth and some money into a traditional vehicle, whether it's an IRA or 401k, splitting the difference is not such a bad idea because although I don't like to see people ever tap retirement, tapping a Roth is a lot less painful than tapping a regular. Our next question is from Shannon. She emailed us at jeanchatsky.com. My question is whether or not I should lower my credit limit on my credit cards. Right now, I have no or low balances on them, but several of my cards have what I consider to be really high limits. I don't want to negatively affect my excellent credit score, but I just don't like having such high available credit. I get it. I, I totally get it because having that high available credit limit makes it seem like you could go on a shopping spree at any time. The fact that she hasn't gone on this shopping spree is one of the reasons that her credit score is so good. When we look at all the different pieces of your credit score, and there are five, there are two that mean the most. One is paying your bills on time every time. The second is utilization, and that is the percentage of the credit that you have available to you that you are using. We see the best credit scores when people are using no more than 30% of their available credit But the closer you can come to 10%, the better that score is going to be. Now, the fact that she's using next to none of her credit means you probably could lower them a little bit. But I would actually just hold off, Shannon. I'd, I'd hold off if you are keeping your own behavior under control. That's the important thing. And there may come a time in your life where you actually do want to use this credit. We have another email from Dee. Dee has two grown daughters, and her oldest graduated from college in 2010. She's fully employed and living on her own. Her youngest is graduating from grad school this May and will start her first adult job in June. Dee says they're middle class and that they have lived a good and happy life but don't live large. Her question, what advice can you give for two 20-somethings to help with their financial futures? Would you recommend that they consult with a financial advisor to get them started on the right track? If so, how do we find them? Um, it's it's a great question, and D, as you'll hear in our Thrive segment in just a minute, it's it's very much in line with the advice that I have for my own son, who's graduating from college this year. Let me just answer the long term future part of your question, though. The most important thing that your kids can do is get into their work-based retirement plan, whether that's a 401k or something else, and start contributing as much as they possibly can. Eventually, we'd like them to be contributing 15%, but if they can get themselves up to 10 pretty quickly, I'm good with that. As far as the financial advisor, I wouldn't worry about that. 
Clearly, if you've already got one daughter out and living on her own, you've done a very good job of raising her. My guess is that you've done a similarly good job with your daughter who's graduating now. So congratulations on both of them. Just have them save and invest for retirement from the get-go, and they will be fine. And stay tuned because we are going to be with you in our Thrive segment addressing this very issue. Thanks, Jean. Okay. And now it's time for our weekly Thrive segment, Graduations Coming Up, and my son Jake called last week and asked if we could work together on a budget, music to my ears. I find that when you're talking about budgeting for people who are getting their first salary, it's important to get really granular, and I mean day-to-day granular. That means you got to look at how much they're going to be earning after tax, how much is going to fixed expenses, rent, car loans, student loans, cell phone, Put aside 10% for saving. If they're doing it through a work-based plan, of course, that'll happen automatically. But even if they're not, if you can get them in the habit of just 10%, 10%, 10%, and then see what's left. And you take what's left and explain to them that's what they have to eat, to entertain themselves, to live on. I find it helps to break it down so that they can see how much they have to spend every single day on an individual daily basis. Sometimes you got to break it down by the meal. And if the numbers don't work, talk to them about whether they can either cut some of those fixed expenses, maybe smaller data plan, or whether they should consider a side gig. I taught SATs when I was first getting out of school. Kelly, when you first started working for me, right? You were working at a restaurant? Yep. And how long did you keep doing that? About two years. About two years, right. So, And and I freelanced to supplement my income all along the way because journalists don't make a ton of money. Many parents supplement their kids. And if you are up for that, you need to talk about where the support begins and where it ends and how they'll receive it so that they can actually factor it into their monthly budget. And then just tell your kids that you'll happily sit down with them to revisit their equations whenever they want. At this point, I don't think there's a need for a financial advisor. I think a parent as advisor can go an awfully long way. Second thing to talk about with them, emergency savings. They're going to get graduation gifts. And yes, those gifts could go to backpacking across the country, but it could also help kickstart emergency savings for if and when they have a small disaster, because believe me, they will have a small disaster. In the best of all possible worlds, eventually they will have a three to six month cushion, but just having a couple thousand dollars gets somebody out of many, many, many financial jams and lessens the likelihood that they're going to have to put those expenses on a credit card. And three, you have to talk about credit. It is really common these days for students to graduate with little or no credit, They have to have credit. It's an important part of establishing financial independence. So if they haven't established it yet, now is the time to do so. If they're going to have trouble qualifying for a card, and you'll know it because they'll apply and it'll get kicked back, you can do two things. You can either add them to one of your cards as an authorized user, and then they can give you money to pay their portion of the bill. You just want to make sure the card company reports to the credit bureaus Or they can opt for a secured card, which is like a credit card with training wheels. Essentially, they make a deposit into the bank that issues that card. That deposit becomes their credit limit. And then you want to go back and encourage healthy credit behavior. Charge a small amount each month. 
pay it off in full, rinse, repeat, and your kids will be off on the right foot. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks once again to Joanna Coles for coming into the studio and spending some time with me. I hope that you will like this podcast enough to subscribe and also to leave us a review. Reviews are very important in the podcast world. Also, send us your questions, your comments. We want to know what you're thinking. We want to know what you want to hear more of. And be sure to tune in again next week. Giada De Laurentiis will be with us and we'll be talking about her life her career, her suggestions, not just for succeeding in the kitchen, but for getting ahead in life. 